got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello and welcome to episode 195 of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I've got a very old famous date for you along with three additional history stories that newspapers were reporting on the same day. I just love seeing how everything fits together on the history timeline. Today's famous date is June 25th, 1876, which means it was long enough ago that very few newspaper articles came with headlines. I got lucky, though, and I found an article that did. This article comes from the New York Daily Herald. And the headline says, The News from the Frontiers, A Centennial War. To really understand what the date was about, though, I'm going to read you some of that article. It says, The fact that we are really at war comes as quite a shock in this centennial season, which was, according to the poets, to be a season of peace and reconciliation. Then, farther down, the article says, We shall defer any criticism upon the battle in the Bighorn region until we know all about it. We can rest content with any campaign in the hands of Sherman and Sheridan. You've probably guessed the topic now, but there was one more name mentioned in the article that will definitely give it away. It was the name of the, quote, Indian fighter, Custer. Friends, Today's famous date of June 25th, 1876, was the day the Battle of Little Bighorn began. It was the day that General Custer was killed in the battle that came to be known as Custer's Last Stand. Just last week, I found myself visiting family in Montana, not too far from the battlefield of Little Bighorn. And yes, I've been to the site of the battlefield before, but we weren't able to actually make it on this trip. So, what actually happened that day? Why was it such an infamous battle? Before I start telling you about it, just know that I am giving you an extremely watered-down version of the history surrounding this event, just because I want to keep this episode about as long as my other episodes. There is definitely much, much more that can be said about this subject. Anyway, back in the 1800s, especially in the post-Civil War years, there was a lot of growth, and the population began to spread across the United States. With this growth and spread of the people, and the railroads and industry, the federal government decided it was time to start making treaties with many different Native American tribes, pretty much so they could push them off their ancestral lands and onto reservations. The Sioux tribes had a couple of famous leaders that I'm sure you've heard of before, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. They didn't like the idea of being pushed onto reservations, and they resisted, which didn't make the federal government very happy. Then gold was discovered on the Sioux land, and it became an even bigger deal to the government to move the Native Americans. The government decided to ignore previous treaty agreements in order to gain access to the gold. As you can imagine, the tribes in the area, most specifically the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne, 
were not happy with how things were turning out, and they started to join together and gather their people together. Where did they gather? In the southeast part of the Montana Territory. The War Department told them to return to their reservations, or the government would attack. But the tribes chose to ignore that warning. And pretty soon, 10,000 Native Americans had gathered together. Preparations for battle between the two groups began in June. Some federal troops were turned back by a show of force from the Native Americans. But then George Armstrong Custer was called to the scene. I don't want to go too in-depth into his past, because that's an entire episode in and of itself. But I will say that Custer was 36 years old at the time, and he'd served a decade earlier in the Union Army during the Civil War. He'd been promoted to Major General there. Custer had gone to West Point, but he wasn't the best student, and he didn't always obey the rules there, and he got into a lot of trouble. He ended up graduating very last in his class. He was present for a lot of big things in the Civil War, though, like the First Battle of Bull Run, and the Battle of Gettysburg, and the surrender of General Robert E. Lee. And he really, really liked the attention he got and he sought for more attention and accolades. One thing General Custer was known for, something that made him stand out from other generals of the time, was that he didn't lead his troops from the back. He led from the front, literally leading the troops into battle. Well, in the afternoon of June 25, 1876, Custer and his 7th Cavalry was sent to scout out the area. Despite the presence of Native Americans in the area, he decided to keep pressing farther and farther, and he didn't wait for reinforcements to come. Then, around noon that day, Custer and 210 of his men entered the Little Bighorn Valley. Sitting Bull quickly began to gather his warriors together and made sure that the women and children were safe and protected. Meanwhile, Crazy Horse took a big group and set off to meet the arriving troops. By the time Custer realized what was happening, and that he had greatly underestimated the number of Native Americans, and probably even their fighting ability, it was too late to be helped. His troops were vastly outnumbered, and there was nothing that they could do to save themselves. The Battle of Little Bighorn began, and within an hour, General Custer and every single one of his men were dead. It soon became known as Custer's last stand, even though he really didn't fight much and had pretty much zero chance of winning once he entered that valley. When the news spread across the country about what had happened in the Montana Territory, people, as in the white people, were very angry, and they became even more scared of Native Americans and demanded even more that they all be moved to reservations. The battles only intensified until eventually the Native Americans were forced to surrender and move. Today, you can visit the site of Custer's Last Sand at the Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument in Montana. It's very interesting and informative. But now, it's time to open some more newspapers and see what else was being reported on June 25, 1876.
Before I start in on the first additional history story, I want to point out that today's famous date, June 25, 1876, was just a few days before the country would be having a huge celebration. Everyone was gearing up for the 100th anniversary, the centennial celebration of the United States. The word centennial was thrown around a lot in newspapers on that day. But for today's first additional history story, I'm actually going to head over to England, because I saw a headline that was pretty shocking even for the 1800s. It seemed like it would have been something printed in the 1600s, or maybe the early 1700s. This headline comes from the Weekly Dispatch out of London, England, and it says, Witchcraft in Somersetshire. According to this story, a woman named Hannah Foote worked as a domestic servant in a home near Yeoville, England. Hannah's mother was in poor health, and Hannah was worried. One source even said that the mother was paralyzed. Hannah didn't know what to do. But then her mother said something strange, something that stood out to her and made her think that maybe she could do something to help her mother. You see, her mother believed that she had been bewitched. She believed that somehow a witch had cursed her or maybe a witch had gotten inside her, possessing her, and that's why no matter what she did, her health wouldn't improve. Hannah started asking around, and she decided to visit a man in town named Frederick Colliford. He was known to be a wise man, and every week he would hold some sort of consultation session inside a beer house. Hannah went to one of these meetings and told him her problem. Frederick assured her that he could help with a bewitching. First, he asked for a certain kind of bottle— And then he started putting things into the bottle. Things like thorns. He also wrote something on a piece of paper and rolled it up tight and then stuck it in the bottle with the thorns and shook everything up. Then he told Hannah to take the bottle home and bury it with the neck facing down in her mother's garden. She was supposed to leave it there for an entire month. If she followed the instructions exactly her mother would start to get better. Hannah was so relieved. Finally, she had something that would help her mother. She followed Frederick's instructions exactly. But her mother didn't improve at all. In fact, she just kept getting worse. And Hannah was mad that she had paid Frederick money for something that was supposed to help, but didn't work. So... She marched herself out to the garden and dug up the bottle. She opened it up and read the note that was inside. It said, As long as this paper remains in this bottle of water of mine, I hope Satan will pour out his wrath upon the person that has been privately injuring for a long time past and put them upon a bed of sickness with the most violent pains that ever man was troubled with forever and such as no man or woman can cure. And as the water is fermented and troubled with these thorn prickles, so shall the flesh on their body be also fermented and troubled at the same time with the most violent pains forever. And as this water do waste and dry away, 
so shall the flesh on their body rot and dry away, until there is nothing left but the skin and bare bones, and they shall not live for more than ninety days from this day, and no longer, and then go into hell everlasting, there to dwell with the devil and his angels, until the terrible day of the Lord, and then to be judged by the deeds done by them towards me while upon earth. So yeah, it was a pretty intense note. Well, Hannah's neighbors heard about what had happened, and they decided to notify the police. They felt bad that she had spent a good deal of money on something that was a scam. So, the police arrested Frederick Culliford, and he was sent to trial. Many newspapers printed about the story and the pending trial, but none of those papers seemed to care enough to print the results of the trial. If I had to guess, though, I would guess that Frederick had to pay back Hannah's money, and that was the end of the story. My second additional history story of the day comes from the Columbus Sunday Inquirer out of Columbus, Georgia. There isn't a headline for this little article, as was often the case in newspapers of this time. So instead of a headline, I'm going to read you the first line of the article. It says, Seven prisoners broke out of the penitentiary at Salt Lake Friday. Yes, it's another prison break story. This one happened at the Utah Territorial Prison in Salt Lake City, Utah. At this time in history, Utah was still a territory, and it wouldn't officially become a state for 20 more years. But even though the state was still growing into itself, it had its fair share of criminals sitting in the local prison. On the day in question, the prisoners were outside in the prison yard, getting some exercise and some sun. They were allowed to go out into the prison yard every day at 3 p.m. That day, though, a few of the prisoners had a different plan in mind. They were going to make a break for it. Their time out in the prison yard just happened to coincide with a shift change, and one guard was just finishing his shift while another one was getting started. The rest of the guards were having dinner with the warden in his home. And if I understand it correctly, the warden actually lived at the prison. The guard who was just beginning his shift of guarding the prisoners was a man named Mr. Philbrook. And according to one article, he was unarmed. Doesn't sound like a very smart idea for a prison guard to me. Suddenly, two prisoners seemingly came out of nowhere and grabbed Mr. Philbrook before he had a chance to move. Those prisoners were Thompson Davis, in prison for being a thief, and Joseph Kane, who had been indicted for murder. Remember Joseph Kane, because I'm actually going to come back to the subject of his imprisonment in just a minute. Anyway, Davis and Kane forced Mr. Philbrick back inside the prison. They told him that if he made any noise or raised an alarm of any sort, they would kill him. Knowing how evil the men were, Mr. Philbrick knew they were being serious, and he tried to keep his cool. Meanwhile, some of the other prisoners tore a plank out of the wall of one of the buildings, and I don't know what its original purpose was, but this plank had spikes all over it. The men propped it up 
and used it like a ladder to climb up into the guard room that doubled as the armory. Now, remember, the other guards were all having dinner, so nobody was up in that room to stop them. It took almost no time at all for the prisoners to take all of the weapons and all of the ammunition stored there. With Mr. Philbrook out of commission and the armory in their possession, two other prisoners decided it was time to make the next move. They were Charles Williamson, who was a horse thief and a murderer, and someone with the last name of Willis. He was a stagecoach robber. The men dropped to the outside of the building, and instead of just quietly sneaking away, they actually broke into the warden's house and surprised him and all the guards while they were sitting there eating their dinner. There was no way they could defend themselves against two armed men while they were sitting around the dining table. In the ultimate Old West style, the prisoners told the diners to stick them up, and they had to obey. Well, there were two extra men inside the warden's house that day. Two prisoners, that is. They worked as cooks for the warden and his crew. And when they realized what was happening, they made a run for it, heading straight toward the prison armory. Now, you might think that they were trying to join with the prison breakers, but in reality, they were running to get weapons to protect the warden and the rest of the guards. But, if you remember from just a moment ago, the prisoners had already taken over the armory. So when the two prison cooks got there, they were instantly met with multiple guns pointed at them. The two cooks didn't stick around to find out what would happen, and immediately turned around and ran. But, Joseph Kane, that evil murderer, wasn't about to let the cooks get away that easy. He stood on top of the prison wall, and as the men ran across the yard, he began shooting at them. One of the cooks was shot in the hand and in the chest, but he was still alive, and he could still run. The pair headed for a clump of brush and dove into it. The man who was shot was named Harrison Carter, and although it was a serious injury, it was a survivable injury if he got quick medical attention. The other cook was F.J. Woodward, and he immediately set about patching up his friend, trying to stop the bleeding, while they were stuck there in their hiding place. As soon as Harrison was as secure as he could be, Woodward snuck through the brush to a home near the prison, and, according to the article, obtained a horse. I'm not sure if he knocked on the door and politely asked permission, or if he just stole it. If it was my house, and a prisoner knocked on my door asking to borrow a horse, I'm not sure if I would believe the next words coming out of his mouth. And I will say here that Harrison Carter, the prisoner who was shot, didn't make it. He ended up dying from his wounds. Anyway, however Woodward obtained it, he got a horse, and he rode into the downtown area to the marshal's office successfully getting help for those still being held hostage back at the prison. And speaking of those hostages, with the warden unable to protect himself, he didn't have any choice but to hand over his keys. The escapees, which was a group of seven men, took the warden and the guards back to the main prison building and then locked them inside a cell with all of the remaining prisoners. The warden 
and the rest of the hostages got really lucky here. Because somehow, when the escapees were rounding up prisoners and stuffing them in the cell to be locked up together, they missed a guy. And although he was in prison, he was still a good guy, you could say, because as soon as the escapees ran off, he found a hammer, and he beat on the lock with the hammer until it broke, setting everyone free. By this time, the marshal and his men were arriving at the prison, and were trying to figure out what in the world was going on. They discovered that two of the escapees had stolen the warden's horses. The others ran behind the horses on foot, headed towards the mountains. If you've ever seen the mountains from the Salt Lake Valley, you'll know that they are big and vast, and it would be very easy for someone to disappear into them, especially without the help of planes and helicopters and drones and even cars to look for the missing people. The marshal gathered a posse together, and they rode off in pursuit, knowing that they were headed into an extremely dangerous situation. The escapees had raided the armory and taken everything. They were heavily armed, and since they'd gotten a head start, it wasn't a stretch to think that they might be hiding in the hills, waiting to ambush anyone who came near them. And many of the prison escapees were willing to risk their lives like that. Why? Because a couple of them had been indicted for murder already, and if convicted, they were probably going to face a firing squad anyway. They decided they would rather risk their chances at escaping. You see, this wasn't the first time that some of the men, including Joseph Kane, that I mentioned earlier, had attempted to escape. In March, just a few months earlier, they'd orchestrated a very similar escape while prisoners were out in the yard getting exercise. Except that time, one of the prisoners approached the warden, a man named Captain Berger, and pretended he had some sort of question for him. But instead of talking to the warden, he grabbed him from behind and held his arms back so he couldn't move. Then other prisoners came, and one of them hit the warden in the head with a rock stuffed inside a stocking. It was a completely brutal attack. The men then escaped from the actual prison, but just like happened three months later, a prisoner working in the kitchen saw what was happening and ran to try to help. He too was hit with the rock-filled stocking, but he was able to recover, grab a weapon, and continue his pursuit of the fleeing prisoners. The prisoner-turned-hero managed to gather up many of the escapees and return them to prison, even though he was a prisoner himself. Sadly, the warden, Captain Berger, was not able to recover from the blows to his head, and he passed away from his injuries. Joseph King was already in prison for murder, but he and the other escapees now had an additional murder charge against them, and people were angry since it was the warden that they had killed. Because of that, they were even more desperate to escape again in June a few months later. The warden during the June prison escape had only held the position for a few short months, and he didn't have time to make the changes necessary to keep everyone locked up how they were supposed to be. Well, during the June escape, many attempts were made to locate the missing prisoners, but unfortunately, they were never found.
Did they change their appearance? Did they change their identity? Did they turn over a new leaf and leave their lives of crime? We'll probably never know. For my third and final additional history story of the day, I'm going to do something a little different. I started working on this episode, and I had two of the additional history stories chosen and researched and all ready to go, but I still needed to find a third story. Sometimes when we go to bed, my husband or I will turn on a history show or a true crime show, and we'll listen to it while we fall asleep. That night, I was just starting to drift off to sleep when suddenly I heard the commentator on the history show I'd been watching mention a date. June 25th, 1876. I figured my husband must have turned something on about the Battle of Little Bighorn. But as I listened, I realized the show was talking about a completely different historical moment. And it was an extremely significant moment in history. Even if it was by accident... I knew I'd found my third additional history story. But I also knew due to the nature of the incident, I most likely wouldn't find any headlines about it on June 25th, 1876. And I was right. Mostly. The event I'm going to tell you about took place at another event. And it did make a few headlines that can still be found today, nearly 150 years later. So... I'm taking this headline from the Knoxville Daily Tribune out of Knoxville, Tennessee. It says, Philadelphia Letter. The first line of the article says, Now, when the great exposition has been open for more than a month, and that, with one or two exceptions, all the foreign countries that are represented here have occupied their allotted space and brought their respective shows in order, is the best time to form a general idea or first impression of the general effect of the whole as a whole. It's hard to understand from just those few words, but the great exposition talked about in the article was the Centennial World's Fair held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1876. It was the first time a World's Fair was held in the United States, and countries from all over the world sent representatives to Philly to set up their wares, and their latest inventions, and technology, and clothing, and food, and so much more. The Centennial World's Fair had officially opened just over a month earlier on May 10th. The exposition was opened by the President of the United States at the time, Ulysses S. Grant. 37 different countries set up pavilions at the fair that year, and it lasted from May all the way until November. The article whose headline and opening line I read to you a minute ago went on to say, quote, What will first strike the visitor now is the immensity of the display. One stands bewildered amongst these vast accumulations of the products and industries of both hemispheres, without knowing how or where to begin, where to go and what to see first, and how to get the very most out of a limited allotment of time. The article then goes on to talk about a lot of the unique things that could be seen there at the fair from around the globe, including some sort of giant lump of silver from Mexico, lace from Brussels, Tiffany diamonds, furs from Russia, 
Although the article writer said that he thought the furs from Norway were better. And some sort of silk kid gloves for ladies that had 22 buttons. I'm glad we don't wear those these days because that sounds annoying. The article writer was also disappointed in the display from Egypt because apparently their previous World's Fair displays were much better. Now, all of this stuff about the Expo was interesting, and World's Fairs were definitely significant in history, but it's not the fair itself that made me want to cover this subject for an additional history story. It was what debuted at the fair on June 25, 1876. On that day, a man named Alexander Graham Bell showed the visitors his new invention. Yep, that was the day Bell introduced the telephone to the world. I can't even imagine a world without telephones now. Alexander Graham Bell was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, back in 1847. At his birth, he was named Alexander Bell. And the Graham part, for whatever reason, wasn't added until he was 10 years old. Alexander's father and his grandfather were both experts on voice and elocution, and they worked with people in the deaf community. Alexander's mother was an accomplished pianist, even though she was deaf. For the most part, Alexander was taught at home, and he only had a couple of years of formal education. He did okay academically, but he was really good at solving problems. He also didn't get along with his father that well. He was expected to carry on the family business, but he clashed with his father. When his grandfather got old and sick, Alexander moved in with him, and that's when things changed. His grandfather encouraged him to learn and grow and pursue things that interested him. Alexander decided to take things more seriously, and he started working with his father, and he soon took over the whole family business. Sometimes Alexander's father would go to North America for work, and on one of those trips, he decided he wanted to move his whole family there. Alexander was just establishing his business in London, and pretty much told his father, no way. But when his only two siblings, both brothers, died from tuberculosis, Alexander decided it was time for a fresh start, and he moved with his parents to Canada. There, he set up another workshop and continued working on his study of the human voice. On March 7, 1876, just a couple of days after his 29th birthday, Alexander received a patent for the telephone, although I don't believe it was actually called a telephone at that point. And if you've been listening to this podcast for long, you'll know there was a dispute over who actually invented it. If you want to know more about that part of history, listen to the episode about the death of Queen Victoria. Anyway, just three days after Alexander officially received the patent, on March 10, 1876, he made the first phone call. He called his assistant in another room and said, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. From there, things moved pretty quickly for Alexander Graham Bell. And by the time of the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia that summer, he was ready to show his invention to the world. He famously showed his new talking device to the Emperor of Brazil, who was astounded by it. 
A year later, in 1877, the Bell Telephone Company would officially be founded. It's fascinating to know that while on one side of the country, destruction and death was happening on June 25, 1876. At the exact same time, on the other side of the country, something was debuting that would literally change the world. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Daily Journal out of Wilmington, North Carolina. It's an ad for something that I had no idea was so old. Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce. The ad says it was produced by connoisseurs to be, quote, the only good sauce. I did a little research, and apparently Lee and Perrin's has been around since 1837. That's a very long time. The ad suggests that the sauce be put onto the breakfast table, where you can use it on hot or cold meat, fowl, fish, and broiled kidney. They also suggested you put it on your dinner table, where it could be used in soup, and on fish, game, hot joints, whatever that is, and in all types of gravy. Friends, thanks for joining me today as we looked back on the infamous Battle of Little Bighorn. Join me again this coming Thursday for a mini-episode about a man who once ruled the United States. Except it wasn't the President of the United States, or even a congressman. Hmm. I think you'll like this one. Then I'll be back again on Monday with an all-new full-size episode. I'll tell you about a great moment in sports history that everybody can be proud of. Talk to you later.